We're in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, Revelation 20. Let me just catch up to speed. Um, we are going to the book of 2 Corinthians, just really wanting to, in this year, talk about a new way to live, um, a new way to do life, a new way to do conflict, relationships, a new way to just love each other, loving difficult people. This just shows us a new way to, uh, to live. And as we walk through this, I really believe that Paul is trying to give us just a vision for things that matter, a vision for heavenly things, for eternal things. He's, take, he's talking to the Corinthians who are just well-known for just kind of living in the moment. And he's saying, hey, set your mind on the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. And so kind of where we're at in this text, if you're with us last week, we looked at chapter 5, verse 1 through 8, and Paul talked about this longing we have for a heavenly body, and this longing for a heavenly home, that you and I long, that we're to long and crave a new body and a new home. And honestly, as, as the years go by, like, I crave this new body. You know, we crave this new home. And Paul's basically saying to the Corinthians, like, I want you to think about eternal things, like things that matter, heavenly things. So as we kind of pick up from last week, Chapter 5, verse 1 through 8, longing for a new body, longing for a new home. Paul's now going to talk about what happens next. What happens when you leave this world? What happens when you enter into heaven? He talks about you get a new body, you get a new home, but then he talks about something called the judgment seat of Christ. And then Paul kind of explains what that is. And so today, we're going to be talking about and looking at Judgment Day. The title today is simply Judgment Day. Welcome to church. I'm so glad you're here. Um, you're like, Josiah, not today. I brought a friend. Come on. No, we are, we're going to walk through this. The Bible actually speaks of two different judgments, and we're going to speak into this and, and look through this um, and look at this. And this is just honestly, I'll be honest, this is one of those messages even preparing just all week. It's just heavy. It's heavy for me. I think it's heavy even as we walk through it last service. It's very sobering. It's also very encouraging because you think about what this means for believers when you stand before Jesus. This is one of those things where you guys, um, I honestly believe when we kind of deal with actually weightier matters, like heavier matters, this is where I think we can, like, God, deal, God can just deal with really real-life issues in us. I think God does his best work when we talk about real issues. I think God does his best work when we talk about heavier and weightier topics. And I, this is what my prayer is for us. Like, God, as we talk about this, as we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, what you explain here, I think this is when God can do his best work in us. Maybe just things we've been holding on to, God's like, it's time to let go. And I just pray that God does that. I pray as we get a vision for just what's to come, like this chapter is specifically like what is to come, the things unseen. And as he talks about this, um, I, just, I just pray to ask that God would kind of loosen our grip on some things that we've been maybe holding on to too tightly. So we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 9 through 11, two and a half verses. All right, that's what we're studying today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 11. I just want to read it all the way through, and then uh, we'll pray. Paul writes in verse 9, remember he just talked about being absent from the body and being present with the Lord. He says in verse 9, so whether we are at home, like in this body, or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. One more time, I just want to read that. Verse 9 through 11. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, our ambition, our, our goal to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
you know, as we just break this down, as we talk about this, again, I just want this to be one of those times, like, Lord, meet us. Um, this is not so much a Bible study as much as, like, God, would you meet us where we're at? Would you give us a, a view of heaven, of eternity, of just this day, this day of seeing Jesus? And I just pray that we'd be able to just kind of be ready for what the Lord wants to speak to us. So why don't you just bow your heads, take a second, just say, Lord, speak to me today. Take a second, just talk to the Lord, then we'll pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this chance we get to study your word. Jesus, we ask that um, you would help us make us aware of just eternity, of things that matter. God, that our heart, our attention, our focus would be on you, Jesus. God, I ask that um, you would accomplish what it is as we just talk through this, as we walk through this, what your word says about this day. Lord, we just ask that you would speak and that you would move and that, God, you just clarify any confusion around this topic, and that we just honor you in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, I'm going to state the obvious here, but I do want to ask you, just like for a second, take, take a moment, like look around. I mean, I know we, we know this, but we know that everyone here one day will pass away. Like we know that everyone here will one day die. I mean, you think about all the people that have gone before us, all the people that will come after us, you think about life and how just fragile it is. I mean, really stop and just think, and you go, wow, Lord, life is incredibly short and heaven is incredibly long. And I think there's different points in my life where God just reminds me of just how fragile life is. I think God reminds us at certain times just like to put things in perspective, like what are we living for? What are we doing here? And God just wants to captivate and get our attention. You know, it's funny, I think just we as Americans or just maybe just we in the West, like we don't like the idea of death or maybe aging, getting older. Like we try to hide death. We try to put people in different care homes and kind of hide it a little bit. If you go to a memorial or graveyard, they're kind of like tucked away at times or we put like flowers and fountains there. We try to make it appear like life when in reality it's just filled with death. I think says we don't want to come face to face with the reality that all of us here will one day pass away. And it's one of those things I think that needs to sink in. It's been one of those, I think, seasons for us as a family, just as people that God reminds us how fragile life is. And even just last Sunday after church, my wife is driving home and she's on, I think, Southwest 18th in Powerline here. And right before she turns, she sees a car cross the road and a motorcycle just slam into it. Immediately, the, the motorcycle flies off their bike. There's people on their cars giving CPR. I drive up a few minutes later. I just see this horrific scene. The motorcycle shredded to pieces. The person passed away there on the road. And you're just thinking a second, just, I know she's overwhelmed with like grief of like, what did I just see? What did I just witness? I got a phone call this week to do a memorial service for a kid who was in my youth group 10 years ago who passed away from an overdose. And it's one of those things where it just hits me different times, like, Lord, life is so fragile. Like, what am I doing? What is going on here? You know, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes where it says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of laughter. And here we are in a comedy club. <laughs> and I laugh because, you know, we pay money to go to a comedy club. No one pays money to go to a house of mourning. Like, who does that? But Ecclesiastes says, why? Because the living take it to heart. There's just something about God. Put things in perspective. You know, I really do believe Paul is speaking to the Corinthians in such intense ways, if you think about this context. Because again, the, Corinthi the Corinthians were just known for living in the moment. If they have a desire, do it. You want sex, have sex. You want more money, get it. Find a way. It's just known for like, how can you just live in the moment? And Paul is saying, no, I want you to live for heavenly things. 
I want you to see the things that are unseen. I want you to be aware of this day, this judgment day, where he says you'll stand before Jesus and really give an account for your life. And Paul is constantly just trying to put things into perspective for this church. You know, it's funny because we as individuals, like we want to deny this day. We want to deny the reality of this day, the reality that all of us will one day stand before God. You know, I love how R.C. Sproul said it. He just simply said, uh, modern man is betting his eternal destiny that there's no final judgment. Like modern man is gambling. They're betting just that, that one day there will be no final judgment. Paul in the book of Acts chapter 17 says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. There is a day. God has fixed a day where he'll judge the world in righteousness. And this is what we're going to talk about. This idea of just what does this mean, this judgment day? The Bible really talks about this judgment day as two different days or two different judgments. The Bible speaks of it as the Bema seat judgment and the great white throne judgment. That there seems to be a judgment day for believers and a judgment day for non-believers. Almost every scholar will agree that there's a variation, there's differences between these judgment days. And what does this look like? What does this mean? So we're going to talk about the Bema seat judgment that Paul references here. And then we're going to talk about the great white throne judgment. All right. So again, welcome to the exchange. We talk about Judgment Day here. Um, and again, I know it's one of those subjects where I just go, God, please like, bring clarity in this moment. Please speak. What it is you want to do, do it. So here's what Paul says. Paul says simply, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, as we walk through the judgment seat of Christ, we're gonna, I'm going to explain this. This is called also the Bema seat of Christ, uh, this Bema seat judgment. And there's three things we'll look at. We're going to see how this, this judgment has a revealing sense to it, kind of like a review of our life, a revealing that takes place. There's also rewards that take place at this judgment. And then we'll see, according to 1 Corinthians 3, there might be some regret at this judgment. So we're going to see this revealing, we're going to see re rewards, and we're going to see regret, and then we'll take a look at the great white throne judgment and the differences between the two. You guys ready for this? Yeah? Judgment day. Here we go. Uh, let's just read it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. What does Paul say here? Verse 10, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad, whether good or evil. All right, let's just kind of break this down for a second. The, the Bema seat of judgment or the Bema seat of Christ. Now, before I talk about what that is, the question is, well, when is this? What, like, when does this take place? I want to get to the what, but I want to start with the when really quick. Uh, the idea is actually probably when the Lord comes, when Jesus comes. Now, obviously, there can be speculation, differences within the church on this, but when the Lord comes, there seems to be this judgment that takes place. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Here's how the author puts it. He says, therefore, judge not nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. He goes, don't judge anything until the time. What time? Until this day. And you know what? The Lord's going to do that. When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the, he, the hidden motives, the hidden secrets and desires of the heart. Each one's praise will come from God. And I just love that idea. God, we should be longing for that. We should want our praise to come from God. This is what that day is, where God either praises you like, yes, well done. You know, essentially the Bible kind of communicates two ideas, that you'll either hear Jesus say something like, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, or you'll hear something like this, like, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's usually how the Bible puts it. There's kind of two Two different uh, expressions when it comes to judgment. Now, we're talking about this idea of when it is. It's when the Lord comes. Now, what is it though? 
But what is the Bema Seat Judgment? What is Paul talking about here? The reason why we call it the Bema Seat Judgment is this word judgment is this word Bema. He says we must all appear before the judgment or the Bema Seat of Christ. Now, obviously, there's context and there's language that they would understand with this Greek word. They had this Bema Seat Judgment. It was in different ways. Usually, the Bema Seat Judgment took place more at like an award ceremony or more like at a, at a time where this athlete or this champion won, they stand up here on this pedestal, and we either celebrate them as a victor or we don't celebrate them because they lost. But it's more in regards to like an award ceremony. John MacArthur said it this way. He says, in Greek culture, bima referred to the elevated platform on which victorious athletes receive their crowns, much like the medal stand in the modern Olympic Games. That's the idea behind it. The idea is kind of like this. What did you do? Like you believed in Jesus, you received Jesus. Now what did you do with that? How did you build your life on that? Now, I want to make it really clear. The Bema Seat judgment of Christ is not where we're judged for our sins. Understand that Jesus was judged for our sins. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. Paul, Romans 8 says, who can lay a charge against God's elect? The idea is that you've been forgiven and justified by the blood and grace of Jesus. This is not judgment day for our sin. God's not gonna, God is so just, he will not judge our sin twice. It's already been judged on Jesus. If you believe and receive Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, know that what you're claiming, what you're saying is, Jesus, my sin was placed on you on that cross. You were judged for my sin, so I'm not gonna be judged for my sin. This is less of a being a judge for your sin and more of that bima, that award ceremony, in some ways. But it is, we still have to understand, as Paul says here, it is a review. It is a review of your life. That you do give an account still. And I think it's important that we just still make that connection. Look at how Paul says it. Things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. Good or bad. I'm not sure what translation you have. Uh, the idea behind this word evil or bad, because you're like, Josiah, it sounds like you're being judged for sin. What are you saying here? Uh, the idea behind this word bad, is it usually is translated good for nothingness or worthlessness. Usually it's translated, hey, what did you do for Christ? Like, you'll be judged for the good, or was it good for nothing? Was it worthless? Did you waste it? Uh, one translation or one author says, the use of the word bad does not indicate the believer's judgment is a judgment on sin since all their sin has already been judged in Christ. That's not the context of bad. It's just how did you live your life? Like, how did you build on Christ? Not that you're judged for your sin, but what was your life like after that, during that? Paul actually will talk about that, kind of references this more in 1 Corinthians 3. But what I want you to get at today is the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to reveal the character and the motives of the individual. The purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to reveal the character and the motives of the individual. Like, what did you do with your time? What did you do with your gifts, your resources? What did you do with what all that God has given? How did you steward that? Whatever Jesus has given you, what have you done with that? And there's this idea that you do give an account for that whether good or good for nothing, whether good or worthless. Not that your sin will be judged because your sin's already been judged on Jesus, but how did you build your life from that point on? You know, the actual, the scriptures kind of show us or kind of give us a cheat sheet to kind of get ready. Like, here's some of the things on that day we will be judged for, and I think it's worth noting and reading. We're going to go through these somewhat quickly, but here's how the Bible actually puts it. First thing is this, if you want to see this up here. Uh, what are we judged for that day? How we treat others, how we love how we use our God-given talents and abilities, how we use our money, how we respond to oppression and injustice, how we endure suffering and trials, how we spend our time, 
how we run the particular race God has given us, how effectively we control our fleshly appetites, how many souls have we just witnessed to and possibly won for Christ, how much do we long for Jesus' return, how faithful we are to God's word and God's people, how hospitable we are to strangers, how faithful we are in our vocation, and how we use our tongue. Like, how are you doing? How am I doing? Right. This seems to be, according to the scriptures, those things that we'll be held accountable for. How did we do in these areas? You know, there's an interesting kind of reminder to me uh, when Belshazzar is having this party in the book of Daniel chapter 5. He's having this party, this celebration. It's getting wild. This hand appears, like the hand of God appears and writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. And here's what Tekel means in Daniel 5, uh, 26. He says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God's like, hey, Belshazzar, I'm looking at your life. I'm putting your life on a scale, and you're lacking. You've come up short. Like, you're on the scale, and it's not enough. You haven't been living up to what I have for you. You've been found wanting. He's like, there's a lack there. So the idea is, like, when your, your life is weighted, like, if I get on a scale, I'm usually not found wanting. It's usually the opposite, right? He was found wanting. There's a lack there, and I do believe this is the idea. When our, we stand before the Lord, and we're on that scale in a sense, is there a lack? Like, what did we do with what Christ has given us? You see, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul is saying this, we make it our aim to please him. You see, the idea is, in light of this judgment seat of Christ, being held accountable for what we do, whether good or evil, he says, Paul's like, we make it our aim, that our goal, our ambition is to please him. That word aim just means ambition. Like, sometimes ambition gets a bad rap, but he's saying our goal and our ambition is to please Jesus. This is why we live. Guys, what a great way to kind of filter life through. Like, if there's a question of, about something you're doing, you're going, does this please Jesus? Am I pleasing Jesus? Is the way I'm, I'm in this relationship with my girlfriend, my boyfriend, is it bringing honor to Jesus? Does it please Jesus? The way I use my time, is it pleasing Jesus? The way I use my money, the way I use what God, like, is this bringing pleasure to Jesus? Paul is saying, in light of the judgment seat of Christ, we make it our aim. This is our goal, to be pleasing to Jesus. We just want our life to say, Jesus, this please you. Without faith, it's impossible to please Jesus. And this idea of pleasing Jesus is like Paul saying, this is the goal here. This is our motive here. And in light of, of this judgment, we just want to please Jesus. Now, I don't want you to get lost here because I know there's some questions that come up, but Paul, I think, elaborates this more in 1 Corinthians 3, again, to the same church. Paul explains what this judgment day will look like, I think, even clearer in 1 Corinthians 3. So would you turn there with me? 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 11. We're going to read that. Paul still is talking about this day. And what are you doing? How are you building your life on Christ? So 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, here's what Paul says about this day. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation of Jesus with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest or made known for the day, the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, 
but only as through fire. All right, stay with me. Paul is saying, we build our lives upon the foundation of Jesus. It is all about Jesus, right? Edward Mote said that, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, every, all other ground is sinking sand. Like this idea, the foundation is Jesus. He's the rock upon which we build our lives upon. It begins with Jesus, it continues with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. He's the foundation. But then he names six materials and says, now how do you build your life on Jesus? Is it gold, silver, precious stones, or is it wood, hay, straw? Like, how are, how are you building your life on Christ now? One, he says, is like combustible. One will end. One will come to an end. One endures. One is building with valuable materials. One doesn't. And he's using this analogy to say, like, what are you and I building our lives with? Like, how are we building on Christ? How are we building on the gospel of Jesus? Like, how are we doing when it comes to that? Now, I want to be really clear here, because in verse 15, he does not say, if you build with wood, hay, and straw, you lose your salvation. He does not say you won't enter heaven. He doesn't say anything like that. What does he say in verse 15? Look, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. I want us to really get this, that we are completely saved by grace through faith, not of works, but also works matter. Like, I think that sometimes in the church we can fall into maybe two extremes where you preach a gospel of works, which is not the gospel, but also you can preach grace and forget that works actually really do matter. Like, we love Ephesians 2.8. We love, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works as anyone should boast. But we forget verse 10 where it says, but you are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So like, we're saved by grace, absolutely. We're going to boast in that, man. I think of the thief on the cross who just simply goes, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus is like, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's all it took. Your faith in me, that's what it is. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. But I think that we forget this message. Part of, this is part of the gospel. That works don't save us, but works will be a byproduct of our saving faith. So we got to understand that works will be part of it. I love how one pastor, Adrian Rogers, said it. He says, your works never lead you to heaven, but your works follow you to heaven. I think it's so true. They never lead anyone there. They never will. You are saved by the grace of Jesus, thank you. But they follow you there. You know, I wrote it out this way. Our presence in the kingdom is guaranteed by the promises of God, but our position in the kingdom of God will be earned or lost by the quality of service we render here and now. The idea that our presence is there by grace. But the Bible seems to speak of like positions or authority or responsibility, which we'll talk about in heaven. And that's not ba- that seems to be based off how do I live my life? How do I run my race? Did I build with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw? See, Paul again says, if you build with wood, hay, and straw, it will be tested by fire, and you will suffer loss, though you yourself are still saved. Now, I don't want anyone here to be like, well, at least I'm saved. Like, yes, at least I'm saved. Yes, I get that. But like, I don't want anyone here to suffer loss. Like, how do we truly build our lives on Christ in this way? This is so important. Like, I I don't want to downplay for a second the idea of, like, how we live for Jesus once we put our faith in Jesus. You know, N.T. Wright says, forgiveness does not mean moral indifference. All right, you've been justified by the blood and grace of Jesus, absolutely, but forgiveness does not mean now we can be morally indifferent. And ideas like your works still do matter, and they still play a role, like, in how we live our life. And yes, you're saved, like, sure, great, but you suffer loss, he says. 
the point is, I think there's this call for us as the church to say, it's not just enough to believe in Jesus. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. That is enough in many ways. But in other ways, how do we build our life now with gold, silver, precious stones? How do we not build our life and like invest in the things that matter? Like invest in the things that will carry on for eternity. To say, you know what? Maybe like we, like the Corinthians, live for the moment and God is trying to break us out of that and live for eternity and to invest in heavenly things and kingdom things. And that's people. That's investing in the gospel. That's preaching the gospel. That's making disciples. How do we invest in things that actually matter and have weight to it? This is what Paul is calling us to in this moment. See, here's the thing when I say this too. There's a time of evaluation or like review or revealing at this moment, but there's also a time of reward. It seems at the Bema seat judgment of Christ that there's some sort of reward that takes place, a reward ceremony in some capacity that takes place. Look at verse 14 again. Paul says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. The Bible often talks about rewards given in heaven. And now, whether that's publicly or privately, the Bible seems to talk about different moments where rewards will be given out. Now, when we think about rewards in heaven, I think we can kind of fall into this trap or temptation like, okay, when Jesus is giving out rewards, he's like, now Billy Graham, come on up. You know, you know Elizabeth Elliot, come on. Jim Elliot, Tim Tebow, of course, he's never sinned before. Like, come on up, guys. Like, we kind of imagine maybe like these great of the greats. But in reality, and I think we do that, but there's going to be so many people we've never heard of, so many people that have just served the Lord faithfully behind the scenes. I think we're, we're going to see people like Pearl Good. good. We're going to see people like Pearl Good in heaven. Just received the reward. Pearl was known for just praying over Billy and praying for his ministry. For 56 years, this woman prayed for Billy Graham and traveled with him. Now, she didn't officially travel with him. She actually spent a lot of her own money, get on Greyhound buses, and traveled over 46,000 miles, following him around, just praying over his events. This woman was surrendered over to prayer. She gave her life to prayer. Eventually, they caught on and said, we want to invite you just to like, pray. We're going to not let you take the bus anymore. Like, come pray with us. And Pearl got involved in that way, but she saw Billy in his early 30s in California. He goes, Jesus, I'm going to dedicate my life to praying for this man and his ministry. Now, here's what happened. Upon her death, uh, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Graham, said this about Pearl. At her memorial, she says, here lie the mortal remains of much of the secret of Bill's ministry. I love that. Here lies the secret of Bill's ministry. This woman who behind the scenes prayed faithfully that the salvations with the work of God, the move of God, Bill, Bill can't get the credit for that. You see, my point is I think that have we been faithful with what God has given us? God has given you prayer, pray. He's given all of us that. God has given us different resources, talents, be faithful with that. See, it's not so much these big things, like I'm very thankful for the people that we know of, like yes, but in reality, I'm so thankful for the people who not crave to be up here, but crave to do the things behind the scenes so we can get this done. The people who just serve privately and faithfully. I love how he says, if you build with gold, silver, precious stones, you have a reward. When it's tested by fire and it dures, you have a reward. There just seems to be this idea constantly throughout the scriptures. Jesus said this in the gospels all the time, but hey, you give a cup of water in my name, you'll by no means lose your reward. Like you have a reward. Hey, you receive a prophet in my name, you'll have a prophet's reward. reward. There just seems to be this idea that there's rewards given in heaven. Now, I, I do want to like talk about this for just a second because this is interesting. Like, what are these rewards? Like, what does this look like? Now, by the way, um, when we talk about these rewards, this is something that gets overlooked, but I love this. As I was even just reading, studying up on this. I love how different authors talk about rewards in heaven, and they point out this idea that there seems to be rewards in heaven. It includes a greater capacity and ability to reflect the glory of God. I thought this was so awesome. 
Now, there's this idea and consensus that there's those who've just rewarded heaven, who've served faithfully, been faithful, they'll be able to receive and reflect the glory of God, maybe in a greater way. Here's the verses. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul picks up on this idea and says in 1 Corinthians 15, you have an earthly body, and those are different, but you'll have a heavenly body, and those will be different. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 41. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 41, Paul says, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differs from star in glory. In the context, Paul is saying, in this resurrection, in this heavenly body, there's different glories. Like, think about the majestic heavens you look at. The glory of the sun is much brighter than the moon. The moon doesn't have any brightness. It just reflects the brightness. Or stars have different degrees of glory, like the brightness they emanate. Some stars are incredibly bright. Maybe some are less bright. And the idea is like, man, you'll reflect the glory of God in some capacity. Maybe there's just some people in heaven, they're like 20 watt light bulbs and some are like 100 watt light bulbs. Like, oh my gosh, like, wow, the glory there. But it's that there's possibly that greater reflection of the glory of God. Another reward in heaven that we see primarily is that there is a greater authority and responsibility in heaven. That one of the rewards for being faithful is you get more faithful service, and that there seems to be somewhat position or authority in heaven. Jesus seemed to communicate this in a lot of different ways and use a lot of different parables to communicate this. One that we know is in Luke 19. Jesus talks about the rich man, the wealthy man, who was going to go away to a far country to kind of get more wealth in a sense. But he basically, these 10 minas, he gives them to 10 different people, and he basically tells them to multiply. And one by one, one person took one mina and got 10, one person took one mina and got five. And Jesus is basically saying, you've been faithful with fuel, make you ruler over many. In fact, it says in Luke 19 and 17, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. The idea is not so much possible that you and I will rule over cities. Some think that. But it seems to communicate this idea of authority or responsibility in heaven. I think that's interesting. I love the idea of just you saying, you've been faithful with what I've given you. You've built with gold, silver, precious stones. Hey, I'm going to reward you with greater responsibility and authority in some capacity. Paul continues that idea of just greater authority and responsibility, and he talks about different crowns in heaven. And maybe you, you've heard this or done a study on this, but the Bible seems to refer to different rewards as different crowns. Probably not so much literal crowns, but possibly. We'll read a few of these verses. These rewards in heaven, these crowns and authority, one is called the incorruptible crown. The incorruptible crown. To so, so those who had self-discipline, uh, really just over fleshly appetites, you could say. Another one's called the crown of righteousness, which Paul says is given to all of those who love the appearing of Jesus. The crown of righteousness will be given if you just love the appearing of Jesus. One is the crown of life, which essentially is promised to those who've suffered well, done trials well, uh, endured well. He goes, you'll be given the crown of life. Another crown mentioned is the crown of rejoicing for those who've been really just won people to Christ, who are dedicating their lives to winning people to Christ. Another is the crown of glory to shepherds who've pastored or shepherded faithfully. I would say this probably would apply to just anyone who is faithful with the people God has given them, this crown of glory. Now, these crowns are mentioned in the scriptures. I don't know if there's so much literal crowns. Some think so, but I think these crowns represent positions or authority in heaven. But you think about these crowns, it is truly promised to anyone, like 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 4.8, if you love the appearing, the crown of righteousness, Paul says, will be given. I just love this idea of like this authority position. You know, maybe they are truly crowns. I really don't know. In Revelation chapter four, you read about all the elders gathered on the throne of God. It says they took their crowns and threw them at the feet of Jesus. Now, maybe there is that. I don't know. It's when I remember like being in eighth grade 
my brother had his friends over and they're very cynical towards God and the Bible at the time and just towards Christians. And I remember my brother's friend was trying to manipulate someone to do something for him. He's like, come on, just go get me food or something. He's like, go get a crown in heaven. And he's like, said that, you know, kind of flippantly. And I just remember the girl's response. It was like stuck with me. She's like, why would I want a crown in heaven? We're just going to throw it at the feet of Jesus anyway. And I remember she said that. And I was like, you know, and they laughed. <laughs> and it's okay. And I thought about them like, wow, that's kind of true. But then I'm like, wait, that's kind of sad. Like, I don't want there to be anyone who's like, could you imagine just seeing this like ceremony? Everyone's like, Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we honor you. Jesus, we worship you. And you're like, I wish I had something to throw at his feet. You see, what I'm trying to get at, Paul actually said that again, 1 Corinthians 3.14. He goes, you're saved, but he says, but you suffered loss. I think there's the reality of like, there's somewhat a regret. This idea of what is loss. I don't want it to be just good enough. Like, well, I got in. That's good enough. But like, what did you do? How did you build on Christ the foundation? Like, did you give the most valuable things you had or did you give them your second best? Did you build with, with gold, silver, or just like wood and straw? You see, I think that's, this is the idea. See, this idea of rewards in heaven is just constantly communicated. Revelation twenty two twelve. listen to this. Jesus said, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So we're not just making up this idea of rewards in heaven. Jesus is like, I'm going to come quickly. And when I do, I'm going to give rewards to everyone according to their work. That's why I think the scriptures can say in Matthew 6, 20, like store up, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth where just moth and rust can destroy it, but like live for heaven, store your treasures up in heaven. Jesus like, I'm coming quickly and my reward's with me to everyone according to their work. You see, there is this idea of just rewards in heaven. But again, we just see the idea too of people who possibly suffered loss. Now listen, I want to just keep going, but you think about the Bema Seat judgment, you think it's about like a, a review or a revealing of our life, our motives, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. What did we do with our time? All those things, how do we build upon the gospel? There, there's obviously that accountability, but there's also that reward kind of to this. Jesus coming with his rewards. There might be those who suffer loss, so maybe there's regret to some capacity. But then there's also another judgment day the Bible speaks of. This judgment day, we refer to it as the great white throne judgment. This seems to be a completely different judgment than the Bema Seat judgment. The Bema Seat judgment being for believers, the great white throne judgment seeming to be for unbelievers. And I want to explain even what that means. When I, just, I don't want to use that lightly. It seems to be for those who never put their faith and trust in Jesus. And we see this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. So can you just turn there? I want you to read this for yourself. Revelation 20, verse 11. It's also verse 11 through 15 just like 1 Corinthians, but here's uh, the, the great white throne judgment, the other judgment day. John writes in John, or Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
I would love for you guys to just go and read all of Revelation and read it in its context, absolutely. But I want to point out this, this topic of the great white throne judgment because there seems to be a difference between the two. The Bema seat judgment being for believers who stand before life, before Christ and give it accountability for their life. And there's this idea of rewards being mentioned. The great white throne judgment, it says when the books are open, like heaven and earth tries to flee. So like, we got to get out of here. We don't, we don't want to be around for this. This is probably a terrible analogy, but it's the picture like when dad gets home and you're like, um, we're going to get out of here. Like this idea of like, okay, there's judgment coming. Judgment was coming, right? And it says that they try to flee. They try to get away. The books are opened. And it's interesting how it says the sea and death and Hades gave up their dead. So they've already been, you could say, punched. They've already been sent to hell. Hades gives up the dead. The question is like, why is that? Why is there seem to be like another uh, second judgment for them? If they're already death and Hades, like they're already there, why offer them up? Here's the idea of this judgment. The purpose of the final confrontation between God and man is to clearly demonstrate to the non-believers why they are condemned. This judgment seems to be like, hey, listen, there's no excuse. There's no misunderstanding. This seems to be like, well, why am I here at this judgment day? Death and Hades offer up the dead and go, what, what is this about? So there really be just a clear understanding of why there would be a second death. Why they'd be cast, it says in this phrase, to the lake of fire. Why? It seems to clearly, so they, they'd understand where they're at. Now, here's what I want to make it known. When you read this passage, he talks about their judge according to what they have done. To what they have done. Now, what is it? What they've done. Why does anyone end up in hell? Why does anyone end up separated from God? Is it because of their bad works, because of what they have done? What is the sin they have done? Here's the sin they have done, Jesus said in John 3, 18. Jesus says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why is someone sent to hell? Simply put, because they have never trusted or put their faith in Jesus. The, the bad things they have done is that they have not trusted in Jesus. <clears throat> Actually, stay with me on this thought. In John 16, 8, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin, of sin because they don't believe in me. When it says they're judged according to what they've, they've done, I believe you could simply put it that you've never received or believed on the person of Jesus. Let me go again. Uh, in the Gospels of John, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what must we do to have eternal life? What are the works we must do to have eternal life? Remember what Jesus said? This is the work, singular, you must do. So he said, what are the works we must do? He says, here's the work you must do. Believe on me whom the Father has sent. And the idea is this. So we're saved by that truth, by believing on him, Jesus, whom the Father sent. What condemns us? It's not the bad things we've done through our life. It's not believing on him whom the Father has sent. The condemnation is that they've not believed on him whom the Father has sent. The Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, of sin that they don't believe in Jesus. Why is someone ever sent to hell? Because they did not believe in Jesus. This is so important because I know the topic of hell is a very intense topic. And it's one of those things whenever we try to communicate, this has to be communicated. God so loved the world, obviously, he gave his only begotten son. Here's the idea. God's like, you want to go to hell? It's going to be over my dead body. And I want us to hear that because you think about a loving parent who says that to their kid. Over my dead body, you're going to that party. And you're like, what? Like, like no, over my, like, you're going to step over my dead body to go to that party. You think about what God did. God goes, over my dead body, you'll go to hell. Over my dead body. And there are people who willingly step over the dead body of God to go to hell. I want you to understand something about, about this. The sins that have gotten them there is that they've never believed on Jesus. This is so different, I think, than we maybe have viewed how, like, oh, but don't all the bad people, don't people who just done terrible things. No, terrible people go to heaven all the time. I'm one of them. It's because you believe on Jesus. Good people go to hell all the time. The sin did not believe on Jesus. This is the issue. And I think this is so important. You know, J.D. Greer, a pastor who wrote about hell, says this, hell 
is the culmination of telling God to get out. You keep telling God to leave you alone. And finally, God says, okay. That's why the Bible describes it as darkness. God is light. His absence is darkness. On earth, we experience light and things like that, like love and friendship and the beauty of creation. These are all remnants of the light of God's presence. But when you tell God you don't want him as the Lord and center of your life, eventually you get your wish. And with God, go all of his gifts. You see, to reject God who's eternally love, eternally good, eternally gracious, to reject that God, you get the exact opposite. You get darkness. You get evil, loneliness. The idea is like, okay, you get your wish. You get the opposite. You see, anyone who's at this judgment, the great white throne judgment, are those who've never believed or put their faith or trust in Jesus. If you believe on Jesus, you will not be condemned. The idea is that we want people to know, this is why Paul says in verse 11, remember what he says in verse 11? How does it end? He goes, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul's like, therefore, just knowing God, we pers- our goal is to persuade others. Hey, you don't have to end up at the great white throne judgment where heaven and earth try to flee before him where you're separated from God for forever. You don't have to end up there. He goes, with Jesus, you can have the judgment seat of Christ, where yes, there's still an accountability. There's still things judged done in the body, whether good or evil, but again, your sin's been placed on Jesus. God in his goodness and his justice will not judge your sin twice, but yes, did you build with gold, silver, precious metals, or wood, hay, and straw? How did you build upon that? You're saved, as Paul says, yet so as through fire. So yes, like, we can celebrate the fact that anyone who ends up in heaven is by the grace and blood of Jesus, that your works could never get you to heaven. Let me just emphasize that again. We are saved by the blood of Jesus and the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Jesus, remember me when we enter into your kingdom. Yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is by the grace of God, absolutely. But we can't downplay and act like works don't matter. Works still do matter. According to scriptures, again, it, it might influence your position, might your responsibility, your authority, just some of those details. But in reality, we just want people to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. I don't want anyone to be in this moment where their name is not found in the, in the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. I don't want anyone to be in that moment. We're trying to persuade others, as Paul says. Like, you know, can I tell you something about the church? We're not trying to be like salesmen and like trying to hide to you what we're really trying to do. Like, no, we're going to be really honest and say, hey, hey, here's all of our cards on the table. We want you to believe in Jesus. Like, we want you to trust in Jesus. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to put your faith in Jesus. The only way someone's condemned is because they've not believed on Jesus. That's the only reason someone's condemned. That's not because of their bad things they've done. It's because they have not put their faith and trust in Jesus, so believe in Jesus. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, he says we persuade others. That's what we want. We want to persuade others. You know, Jesus clearly said, and I think spoke of somewhat this day in Matthew 7. Here's what Jesus said. You guys know this. It's very familiar, but he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, you think about this. They, they said, your Lord, Lord. They, they claimed your Lord, Lord, but he goes, I wasn't your Lord. You said with your lips, Lord, Lord. You did spiritual things. But this profession, it was not true. It, was, it did not lead to like change because you didn't do the will of the Father in heaven. So does doing save you? No, but doing is a sign that you are saved. He goes, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Again, works will never save us, but they validate our saving faith. So works don't save you and I. But Jesus goes, here's the issue. You didn't do the will of the Father in heaven. What's the will of the Father in heaven? That you believe on him who the Father has sent. 
that you believe on Jesus, you trust in Jesus. You don't just say Lord but with your mouth, but you believe it in your hearts. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. It's this confession with this belief, with this trust, with this giving over. My body is yours, God. What do you want to do? I'm all yours. You see, I just want to end with this idea. What, what is the word for us today? When it comes to the Bema Seat, Great White Throne Judgment, hey, if you're a believer in Jesus, build your life on the foundation. Build your life on Jesus with gold, silver, precious stones. Give your best to Jesus. Don't give him secondary things. Store up your treasures in heaven. Like, yes, like you want that reward he talks about when Jesus is like, come quickly and I come with reward to give to everyone, do what they have done. Hey, I would say yes, like build your life on Jesus well. Live for Jesus well, absolutely. If you do not yet know Jesus or believe in Jesus, believe on Jesus and you will be saved. It is that simple. Pass from death to life. We don't want anyone here in that Revelation 20 great white throat. We don't want that. We want you to sit, we want you to be at the reward ceremony, that bema seat, that well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's where we want you at. That's where I'd say, that's where Jesus wants you at. Just to say, well done, come on in. I mean, listen, this is the only response I believe we can have to a message like this. I think the only fitting response to this was a parable Jesus gave in Luke 18. In Luke 18, Jesus talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee goes to the temple to pray and says, God, thank you so much. I'm not like this man. I'm not like an adulterer. I'm not like all the other sinners. And we're told that the, the tax collector had a completely different response. And here's what it says in Luke 18, 13. It says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think the only proper response is we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The only proper response, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, is humble yourself so he will exalt you. You exalt yourself, he's going to humble you. But you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Be the person who says, Lord, all I can, all I can do is boast in your mercy. Be merciful to me, I'm a sinful man, God. That's something I can agree to. I, I think there's a moment like this when you, when you do study something like this. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves, test yourselves to whether or not you're in the faith. There is something about, hey, let's examine, let's test. Let's also boast in the finished work of the cross. Let's also say, Jesus, thank you that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Thank you for that. But we also, Jesus, recognize that works matter to you. We know that we're not saved by works, but you know what? We want our life, we want our life to match what we believe. We believe you are Lord. We believe you died and rose again from the grave. We want our life to back that up now. We don't want to just play the Christian game. We don't want to just boast in grace and not let grace have its transformative work. No, let grace, like Titus 3.11 says, have that transformative work in you. Let it teach you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, that you should live righteously, godly, and sober in the present age. That's what the grace of God does. You see, the grace of God does something in you in such a way where you go, my life, my life, because of the grace of God, any good works in me is by the grace of God, but this grace has so transformed me and changed me, my works are now going to model this. Listen, church, I just want to spend some time examining our hearts before Jesus. I want this time to be a Psalm 139, Lord, search me, know me. God, test me, try me. Know where I'm at with you. I just think when you, you read through a passage like this where Paul says, therefore, we persuade others. Our hope is that no one here would leave this place not knowing Jesus, not believing in Jesus, not trusting in Jesus. Our hope here is that every follower of Jesus would build their life on the gospel of Jesus with the best they got.
that they would build their life on the gospel of Jesus with gold, silver, precious stones. That we'd say, God, I'm going to be a good steward of what you've given me. I'm not going to bury it. I'm not going to hide it. Jesus, I'm going to multiply it. That we would store up up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Amen? Can we just give some time? Why don't you guys just take a second, honestly. Bow your head. Close your eyes. We just want to invite the Lord to search us a little bit. We want to invite the Lord to move. Why don't you just take a second and say, Lord, search me. Lord, know me. If you've not yet, put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. No work could ever save you. No no work on your behalf, what you've done. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. And we just rest in the finished work of Jesus. And followers of Jesus, we want to build our lives with the best we got on the gospel of Jesus. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that we can slow down, be reminded of just who you are. God, it's humbling to think that obviously you know, you know me, you know everyone in this room, you know the motives, you know the secrets, you know those things, Jesus. We just, we just beg for mercy. Jesus, we are sinners and we need your mercy. Lord, we thank you that it is so true that when we cry out for mercy, we find it. That mercy triumphs over judgments. Jesus, so we are here to cry out for mercy. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Jesus, we want to look to you now and just run this race well. Build on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus well. We don't want to waste our time here, God. We don't want to be good for nothing. We want to, Jesus, be about your business. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. That is our desire. God, thank you for the grace that is there when we fall back into old patterns. We thank you for your mercy that is there when we cry out to you. Jesus, we thank you that you lift us up when we humble ourselves. We thank you, Jesus. We are here to boast in your grace, to boast in the cross, to boast what you've done. And Jesus, now by your spirit and by your grace, we just ask that you'd empower us to to just build well, to do this well. In your precious name, Jesus, we just want to sing to you now.